Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You could use a shortwave radio with the schedule of English language broadcast, but it's simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, Afshin Mertansi's Going Underground, Radio Havana Cuba, and NHK Japan. We will begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Six young people from Portugal are suing the European Union at the European Court of Human Rights. They accuse the European Union and 30 individual countries of inaction on the climate crises, violating their human rights. This follows a similar youth lawsuit in Montana, where the court agreed that the state was not protecting them when it supported fossil fuel development. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Six young people from Portugal are suing the European Union at the European Court of Human Rights. They're accusing the EU and more than 30 countries of inaction on the climate crisis and so violating some of their fundamental rights. There have been similar cases around the world on a regional or national level, but this is the first involving several countries at once. The activists and their supporters are in Strasbourg, where the hearing opened today. Portugal 2017. Fires gripped the country, burning homes and raising entire communities. More than 100 people were killed in the blazes, which scientists say were made worse by human-made climate change. Scenes like those were what motivated six youths in Portugal to sue 32 nations for violating their human rights. When I realized our rights were being violated because of climate change, I thought, this is going too far. The group's lawyers intend to argue that the climate crisis threatens their clients' rights to life, privacy and to be free from age discrimination. They say the EU, Norway, Switzerland, the United Kingdom, Russia and Turkey are violating those rights through their inaction on the climate crisis. They're hoping pressure from judges at the European Court of Human Rights will compel countries to set higher emissions targets and cut the production and use of fossil fuels. What I expect from governments is that they take climate action for something that is real. This is the main problem because it's infringing on our human rights. The activists hope the case will inspire other young people to raise their voices and force governments and companies to listen. Let's get more from our correspondent, Rosie Burchard, in Brussels. Welcome, uh, Rosie. So the case opened today. How will it proceed? Dozens of lawyers in the courtroom as the European Court of Human Rights starts to hear the legal arguments in this, what is really a landmark case brought by these young people aged between 11 and 24 and supported by the non-profit group, the Global Legal Action Network. Now, these young people are coming to court with arguments about what they say is a risk to their health 
promoted, prompted by climate change because they say wildfires in Portugal, they argue, are directly caused by climate change. They're talking about risks to their health, for example. They've brought arguments about respiratory illnesses, about disruption to their sleep. And they say that this is impacting on their right to life, which is enshrined in the European Convention on Human Rights. But they're also bringing an argument about discrimination because they say, as children and young people, their generation is particularly affected by the impact of climate change. Now, after this hearing, judges at the European Court of Human Rights will deliberate. We don't have an exact timeline on when they will come to a decision, but it's likely or expected at least that could be sometime in the first half of 2024. And what is at stake for the EU and for the 30-odd governments involved? Well, if the court sides with the complainants, with these young people, the countries involved could be mandated, court-ordered, to rapidly accelerate their progress towards slashing emissions. But there is quite a lot of legal hurdles to jump before getting there. The countries involved have been arguing not only that they are taking action against climate change, but also they're bringing a lot of technical legal arguments, for example, about whether or not the court has the appropriate or right jurisdiction to actually hear this case and one thing they're bringing up is that usually for a case to reach the European Court of Human Rights national legal remedies would have had to be exhausted so complainants would have had to bring a court to their national jurisdiction and there before it would get to this top court in Strasbourg that's not happened in this case so it will of course be down to judges to decide since the complainants brought this case uh, back in 2020 and since they were inspired to do so by those wildfires in Portugal in 2017 of course, we've seen many more wildfires across Europe and also other incidences of extreme weather, for example, floods. So that certainly has gone some way to focusing government's minds in terms of addressing climate change. But certainly those activists in court today and many others would say that EU governments simply have not yet done enough. Thanks for that, Rosie. Rosie Burchard in Brussels. That interview is from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. They are also available at most podcast sites. Next, Afshin Mertansi's Going Underground. Afshin speaks with Alistair Crook, a former British diplomat and founder of the Lebanon-based Conflicts Forum, an organization that advocates for engagement between political Islam and the West. He talks about Zelensky's recent trip to the UN General Assembly and how the US is becoming isolated in its admiration. Also, the growth of deep divisions among NATO countries and Ukrainian anger as US support begins to dwindle going underground. While there are signs of discontent in Washington and even in the US media about the war on Russia through Ukraine, Europe remains steadfast. Once advising the foreign policy chief of the European Union was British diplomat Alistair Crook. He's now director of the Beirut-based Conflicts Forum and he joins me again from Rome in Italy. Sergei Lavrov in New York. That's all hot on the heels of Wednesday's informal BRICS meeting. Biden celebrating with Zelensky at the White House. Two separate worlds now, uh, the international community versus uh, the United States and arguable vassal states of the United States. Certainly, but increasingly the, the United States is, is becoming isolated. I think that although Europe gives token 
uh, head nods towards Washington. What can it do else than that? I mean, it has made itself a vassal of the Biden administration. So, you know, uh, it wants to keep its jobs. So they have to say the right things. But there's great divisions and, and much more so at um, the ground level where people, I mean, the economic consequences uh, of the sanctioning of Russia I mean, are just playing out now in terms of high unemployment and people can't afford food. I mean, the food prices have gone up so much. There's the stirrings of um, anger and protest at what has happened. There's official media censorship in the European Union, of course, in, in Britain as well. But signs of dissent in the United States. I mean, even the Salzburger's New York Times uh, showing the fake news that Russia attacked a market when it was, in fact, it looks like Zelensky uh, forces killing civilians in, in Donetsk. How easy will it be for the United States to decouple from Western Europe and from the policy? All of the main parties were co-opted long ago by Brussels as sort of centrist left, centrist right lookalikes. So, you know, actual reform of the European Union or the project or even a serious analysis of why they made so many mistakes about Ukraine. I mean, made the mistake of sanctioning Russia, made the mistake of thinking that this was all going to come right in a few weeks, made the mistake of getting involved in the proxy war with Ukraine, and made a huge mistake in pursuing this and formulating language and formulating expected outcomes that are actually going to uh, hit back like a boomerang and hurt them more because they're not going to get, you know, Russia isn't about to collapse, either economically, politically, or culturally. In fact, it's got stronger during this process of sanctions. And if anything, Europe has got a lot poorer and a lot weaker. The narrative has always been, you know, NATO is united and you NATO is together. That's no longer true. There are deep divisions both at the military level and also increasingly at the political level about that. But that point you made about the New York Times, you know, these things don't happen by accident. I mean, the last time Zelensky came to, came to Washington, um, you know, this was to a tumultuous welcome in Congress, and he was a hero, and he was a sort of celebrity. Everyone wanted to shake his hand. This time it was a bit different. When Biden spoke, in the UN, at the General Assembly, there was a passing reference to Ukraine, but most of it was about reforming the world order and about the uh, Security Council and the BRICS and how to actually change the world order. And yes, there was a reference to Ukraine, but it was boilerplate. It wasn't, it was nothing. And they looked so angry and, and crestfallen. I mean, the Ukrainians were really unhappy. Zelensky had a sort of grim look on his face and the others did as well. And then, you know, the writings on the wall, Poland won't even agree to, to meet with him. When he did speak uh, at the assembly, I don't know the exact numbers, but I mean, it was half empty. The, uh, yeah, I saw the, the reverse the shots conference. there. That was very interesting. And yeah. of course, Zelensky not addressing Congress either. All those congressmen who've been enriched, arguably, yeah. or at least the donors that back them, have been enriched from the arms companies from this conflict. This was a clear signal to Zelensky. It wasn't just, you know, poor, you know, poor reception, poor Zelensky. This was intended 
from the New York Times piece um, to the reception um, at the assembly and no Congress this time, no signing of a flag and everyone cheering and hurrahing. The G20 meeting went ahead and Zelensky was not invited. They've run out of men. I mean, the, the forces have been decimated. They have almost no shells left. But the point is you can't, you know, you can't order new, a new army from Amazon. It just doesn't work like this. I mean, you, you may have to grow it over a generation, but they've really lost so many men, maybe up to half a million, dead. Um, it's really, I mean, it's tragic more than anything else. It's really tragic that all these young men have been sent off to their deaths. What, for good optics at the General Assembly? Good optics in Washington that they've been fighting and right up to the last moment? So there's increasing dissatisfaction uh, in the military. Of course, propaganda has tried to keep it sort of contained during this period, but that's uh, so much the case. Because, but, you know, the question keeps coming up for them. Okay, you know, you say you're going to start again next year. Why is it going to be any different next year from this year? And what's going to happen this winter? Do you have any idea about that? The ultranationalists are very much on the defensive and trying to keep everything going by um, really by strong arm tactics more than anything else and, you know, just flat out propaganda. But uh, the tensions are enormous. And of course, the, the people are really, because of, there's been this conscription where, you know, they've had their brothers and fathers and things just sort of rounded up, beaten and thrown in a truck to go off to the front to be killed. I mean, there's a lot of that, but there's no, there's no structures for popular dissent. It's all been crushed. I mean, they, there won't be a popular rising. It can't happen. So it's got to be a sort of internal fight at the top level uh, of the regime um, to sort this out. Alistair Crook, thank you. That excerpted interview with Alistair Crook was by Afshin Ratansi from his twice-weekly program called Going Underground TV. You can find the complete interview at the Canadian-based streaming service called Rumble.com. They've also posted archived interviews Afshin did with Julian Assange, John Pilger, and many others. Search for Going Underground TV on rumble.com. On to Radio Havana, Cuba. The Venezuelan foreign minister says the United States intends to build a military base on disputed land bordering Venezuela and Guyana to begin taking oil from the region. President Maduro of Venezuela spoke at the latest BRICS Plus Forum, encouraging the de-dollarization of international trade. Radio Havana, Cuba. Venezuelan Foreign Minister Ivan Hill says the United States intends to establish a military base on a disputed territory between Venezuela and Guyana called Essequibo, stressing that Washington seeks to take control of oil resources in the region. 
Quote, we condemn the intention of the U.S. government to militarize the situation in El Esequibo. The Southern Command is trying to create a military base in a disputed territory in order to create the spearhead of its aggression against Venezuela and seize our energy resources, Hill said at the United Nations General Assembly. The Venezuelan Foreign Minister further noted that the Venezuelan Parliament has passed a referendum protecting the sovereign territory from U.S. aggression, adding that Washington is again trying to interfere in the 200-year-old territorial dispute between the two South American nations. Quote, the U.S. government seeks to appropriate our oil resources by using the company ExxonMobil, which has incorporated the government of Guyana into its ranks, he said. Guyana and Venezuela have been engaged in a long-standing dispute over Esequibo, an area of 160,000 square kilometers that is administered by Georgetown but claimed by Caracas. The region is rich in oil and gas, especially in offshore areas. The former British colony sees its current borders established by a court of arbitration in Paris by 1899 as accurate. But Venezuela insists that the Esequibo River to the east of the region is the more natural border between the two countries, as was the case in 1777. In 2018, Guyana asked the International Court of Justice, the ICJ in The Hague, to resolve the dispute and ratify the current borders. Back in April, the ICJ ruled it had jurisdiction over the issue which could determine which country has rights to territory rich in oil and gas, especially offshore. The President of Venezuela, Nicolás Maduro Moros, advocated this Thursday during the BRICS Group Summit in South Africa to advance in the process of de-dollarization of the world economy in the context of the birth of a new world order and new world geopolitics. The Venezuelan head of state spoke during the BRICS Plus Dialogue, which hosts the summit of the bloc made up of Brazil, Russia, India, China and the host nation, which starting next January will include Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates and Iran. There he urged other nations to join the de-dollarization in view of the indiscriminate use and abuse of the U.S. currency as a mechanism of economic warfare against the free peoples of the world. He pointed out that at least 30 nationals and 2,178,000 human beings, that's 28% of the world population, are affected by imperialist sanctions and other measures of extortion and economic warfare. He stated that unilateral restrictive measures cause undeniable damage to development models and violate the exercise of human rights, an aspect recognized by the United Nations Human Rights Council in March of 2023. In this regard, he proposed the configuration of a new financial architecture that allows transactions with innovative physical and digital means with broader basket of national currencies. He also stressed the importance for developing nations to have access, quote, to new forms of financing that contribute to the recovery and growth of their economies. The Bolivarian leader pointed out that Venezuela can share with the BRICS bloc, quote, the experience accumulated in the struggle and resistance against the illegal imposition of criminal sanctions, unquote. He added that his country can also contribute to this global integration model, the largest certified oil reserves of the world, amongst other wealth patrimony of the Venezuelan people. Cuban President Diaz-Canel expressed his certainty that the new world order is already a reality and that, quote, BRICS can play a fundamental role in the geopolitical dynamics 
On Wednesday, Maduro Moros invited the countries that make up BRICS, as well as other allied nations, to invest in a new productive special economic zone in the countryside, with an extension of more than 5 million hectares that would focus on food production to satisfy local consumption and exports. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu. There's no podcast up there, however. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15.140 and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 6,060.60 or 61.65. At their website, radiohc.cu, you can stream the English version at noon, Monday through Friday, Pacific Daylight Saving Time. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or want to support this listener-funded program, like a perennial supporting community radio station WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana did last week, contact information is available at outfarpress.com or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Your support helps the weekly production of this show, which is distributed without cost to more than 100 radio stations across the globe. Hats off to WFHB for keeping this show rolling. We will conclude with NHK Japan. North Korea expelled the U.S. soldier who sought refuge in their country. Russia is considering joining China in stopping the import of Japanese seafood potentially contaminated by radioactive waste discharge at the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese nuclear industry is finding it difficult to find a place for its radioactive waste. South Korea held its military parade in Seoul for the first time in 10 years. At the United Nations General Assembly in New York, North Korea denounced the new military alliance between South Korea, Japan, and the United States. NHK Japan North Korea has decided to expel a U.S. soldier who entered the country through Panmunjom in July. The state-run Korean Central News Agency on Wednesday said authorities made the decision on Travis King based on the country's laws after investigating. The private was stationed in South Korea. He crossed the military demarcation line without permission during a civilian tour of the joint security area. KCNA added that King said he made the illegal entry because he harbored ill-feeling against inhuman maltreatment and racial discrimination within the U.S. Army and was disillusioned about the unequal U.S. society. U.S. media are reporting that before entering the North, King was about to be sent back to the U.S. to face disciplinary action. Russia is weighing a suspension of Japanese seafood imports following the release of treated and diluted water from the damaged Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant. Russian authorities issued a statement on Tuesday saying they may follow in China's footsteps. Beijing halted imports after the water release began on August 24th. Russian officials said they sent a letter to Tokyo requesting talks. They also asked to receive information on Japan's method of testing for tritium and other radioactive substances by October 16th. They said the final decision will be made after talks are held. 
Meanwhile, at the UN General Assembly on Tuesday, Japan and North Korea clashed over the water's safety. North Korea's ambassador to the United Nations, Kim Sung, accused Japan of causing irrevocable damage to the safety of humanity and the marine environment. A Japanese representative rejected the claims. Ambassador Shino Mitsuko said it's been confirmed that the concentrations of nuclear materials are well within safety limits. She added that Japan will never allow any discharge that would adversely affect human health or the environment. Japan's nuclear industry is trying to find a place for its radioactive waste. But options are dwindling after a city in southwestern Japan rejected a bid for a final disposal site. The mayor of Tsushima in Nagasaki Prefecture struck down the plan despite majority support for it among his city's assembly members. Hitakatsu Naoki said the public was too divided and felt it would be too difficult to gain the understanding of local residents. Japanese law calls for high-level radioactive waste from nuclear plants to be buried more than 300 meters underground. Tsushima was among several municipalities considered for the proposed final disposal site as part of a three-stage selection process expected to take two decades. But each stage requires local government approval. Cities that agreed to take part in the initial survey could be eligible for subsidies of up to $14 million. Two municipalities in the northernmost prefecture of Hokkaido have signed on despite some local pushback. South Korean President Yoon Son-yeol's administration has held a military parade in the center of the capital Seoul for the first time in 10 years. The country has expressed strong, a strong stance against North Korea, which is advancing its nuclear and missile development. Around 4,000 soldiers took part in the parade on Tuesday evening, ahead of South Korea's Armed Forces Day on October 1st. The parade featured tanks, self-propelled artillery, and a surface-to-air missile system for intercepting North Korean ballistic missiles. U.S. soldiers stationed in South Korea marched with the country's military in a show of unity. Earlier in the day, Yoon delivered a speech. He said if the North uses nuclear weapons, he'll end its regime with an overwhelming response by the South Korea-U.S. alliance. Military parades used to be held in central Seoul every five years, but the previous Moon Jae-in administration, which placed importance on dialogue with the North, did not hold any. Tuesday's parade was the first since 2013. In New York, where North Korea's UN ambassador has denounced security cooperation by Japan, the United States and South Korea, he says Washington's attempts to put pressure on Pyongyang are bringing the region closer to nuclear war. The formation of the tripartite military alliance among the United States, Japan, and the Republic of Korea has also put into practice its long-sought ambition for an Asian version of NATO, thus introducing a new Cold War structure to Northeast Asia. He also hit back at remarks made by South Korea's president at the General Assembly. 
Yoon Sun-yeol condemned North Korea and Russia for appearing to seek military cooperation. But Kim Song says the Republic of Korea had no business interfering with the North's equal and reciprocal relations with another sovereign state. He also called the South a colony of the U.S. Those reports are from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard at 10 p.m. at 13.710 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. All the times they announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. NHK may also be found at most podcast sites, as is the shortwave report. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and E.U. prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, find information for online support, There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 26 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. While I am recuperating from spinal surgery, I am staying at a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.